Club. A podcast where two young women explain the ins and outs of Australian politics. And there's no such thing as a stupid question. My name is Justine Landis-Hanley. I am a Melbourne-based journalist and I used to work very briefly in politics. My name is Matilda Bosley. I'm also a Melbourne-based journalist and one of my sims currently works in politics. <laughs> well, he's a secret agent, but I reckon he's pretty high up. So I think he's probably got some government connections. Probably an ASIO. Like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You can't beat them, make them into Sims. Oh, my God. I used to do that when I was a kid. If there was people I was pissed off at, I'd make them into Sims and then make their lives horrible. I wonder if current politicians do that because oh, coming true. up on the show this week, <laughs> New South Wales has finally gone into a two-week lockdown after saying that that wasn't necessary. How have lockdowns become so politicised and will this decision impact on New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian or Scott Morrison, for that matter, at the next state and federal elections? Is it the downfall of Gladys Berejiklian? No. Go on. (laughs) Then we are going to deep dive into what the fuck happened in the Nationals Party this week and how Australia's weird uncle Barnaby Joy somehow ousted the Deputy Prime Minister and took over the second highest job in the country. How did this happen? And once again, will this impact Scott Morrison's chances at the next federal election? Wow. The next federal election, which will now be held as far into the fucking future as possible. (laughs) Yeah, they're definitely not calling it any after this week. Remember when we're like, the federal election's going to be this year. Yeah. Yeah. No. But first, Matilda, how's your week? Oh, my God. So I have, I've like already spoiled what my week was like. Because guess what my week was like? I didn't, did it involve Sims? Sims, baby. <laughs> I downloaded Sims again. Uh, I've currently, I've been raising Anthony and I's family. Producer Anthony, also my partner in life. Um, <laughs> Wait, uh, you made yourselves in The Sims? Yeah, we made ourselves in The Sims and we had our first child called Astro, which is <laughs> our actual child, Astro the cat. And then we had our second child called Olive. And she's a real piece of shit. I'm not liking it. (laughs) God, they're annoying and they're toddlers. You have to spend so much time looking after them. But yeah, no, it's been, it's, it's taken up a lot of time. I found myself cancelling social events to play The Sims. Because you got to look after all the Astro. I'm like, I'm an adult. I have responsibilities now. There's no excuse for not going out for drinks with your friends because you want to play The Sims. I don't know how to segue off of that. (laughs) Ask me how my week was. How was your week, Justine? My week was vastly less exciting than... Oh, I'm sorry. What about my week was sounding exciting? I mean, you got married and had two children. That's That's pretty... That's that's a lot to happen in a week. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Most people spend their lifetimes doing that, but, you know... It's been a whirlwind, but I'm glad. (laughs) We've extended to a second floor. It's all going well. (laughs) I have... Some people have been asking us about my cat drama. Like, legit, people have been asking how how what's happening because in a previous episode I talked about how my cat has a new best friend who lives next door called Pepper. Last time I talked about him, I talked about how he came over at like 5 a.m. and ate Sunny's food and then projectile vomited all over the hallway. Classic. That has happened again. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But we now have a new plot, a new plot development, which is that another cat has moved in on the other side of our house. We don't know his name. 
We call him Bruiser because he's evil. And he also comes into the house to try and eat Sonny's food. And Sonny does not have a bar of it. Yeah, he's a bit evil from what I've seen. Sonny is also a fucking wimp. (laughs) Anyway, we now have an issue where we have on the one side of our house, the friendly cat who comes over on the other side of our house, the mean cat who comes over and tries to attack our cat and steal his food. And we're trying to navigate this very um, tense environment. So that's an update. Have you considered closing your door? Look, our door has a cat flap built into it. Have you considered closing that cat flap? Yes, but then Sonny can't Sonny can't go out because he doesn't know how to push it with his head. So it has to be permanently open. Oh, my God. So, like, we're in a bit of a pickle right now. So for those of you who wanted to know the update, that is the update on the life of my cats. Far more interesting than my own life. Um, stay tuned. That's all I've got. Astro's a straight-A student in Sims. Now, before we jump into the whole Sydney lockdown, we have some exciting news, which is that Old Boys Club is now on Patreon, which means that if you are feeling so inclined, you can head over there at patreon.com slash oldboysclubpod and support us in a financial way. And this will just be a way to help us really grow, keep the podcast going, and basically just support in general if you're feeling like you're in a position to do that. Yeah, it turns out podcasts cost money to run. But don't worry. If for whatever reason you can't or you don't want to become a Patreon member, that is totally fine. This podcast is going to remain 100% free and accessible to everybody. If you want to support our podcast in other ways, you can also shout us out on your Instagram stories. Tell a friend to go listen. Word of mouth is the best way to spread the podcast. Or you can follow or subscribe to our podcast on Spotify or iTunes. Let's get into the news, baby. Turning to our first story, just three days after categorically stating that a lockdown was definitely not necessary, New South Wales is now in a two-week lockdown. But I think one of the most interesting questions to come out of this is why there was so much umming and ahhing from the New South Wales government about going into lockdown. And it's raised the question as to whether this is an example of how lockdowns and the pandemic in general has become so politicised. But first, Matilda, before we dive into the political machinations of this story, What actually happened? How did this New South Wales cluster start? Well, my friend, that is the question (laughs) of the hour. Yes. Uh, So what we know is that the index case for this was a limousine driver who was ferrying people from the airport to and from hotels. So like international crews, freight plane crews, you know, there is still people coming in from other countries to Australia as mm. much as we like to pretend that it's not happening. Mm. And this person was carrying people. We believe that it was like three FedEx crew that he was ferrying. I don't know what's going on with FedEx, why they're so fancy and they have limousine drivers <laughs> taking their people to hotels. I'm not sure what's going on there. But essentially, it's unclear exactly what uh, anti-COVID guidelines were being followed within the car. Uh, But what is clear is that this limousine driver wasn't getting regularly tested for COVID. He didn't have his first shot of any vaccination and he was out in the community while infectious for a considerable period of time, mainly around the Eastern Beaches, Bondi. That's where it started. It's grown from there. It's the Delta variant. That's the one that's uh, the Indian variant. And it's real contagious. Okay, but wait a second. You said that he was driving people around, but he hadn't been getting regularly tested for COVID, despite the fact he was driving around people coming from overseas. He hadn't had a vaccine shot yet. Isn't this a breach of some sort of guidelines? 
That is a good question <laughs> because it turns out there were guidelines, but it's unclear if there were any consequences legally at all for not following guidelines. Okay. And if you, like, stay with me. Okay. A law without penalties mm-hmm. is a suggestion, right? Fundamentally. You, yes, I, I think that's a fair, a fair <laughs> like, argument there. Like, that's what a law is, right? There's consequences for breaking them. And it's not clear there were any consequences for breaking them because that's what it turns out, which was just sort of suggested guidelines. I'm, I Look, I'm poking a bit of fun here because it's going to become significantly less fun as it goes on. But my kind of the weirdest moment for me for this whole week was when Brad Hazard was standing up to announce the sort of more, well, not more severe, the first time severe penalties for not following these guidelines. He said, now you can't legislate against stupid. You can't make laws (laughs) stopping people being stupid, which yes, you can. That kind of feels like Like, what laws, the point of laws are. That's literally what every single law is. (laughs) Like it's defining what behaviours are socially acceptable. It's defining what's not stupid. I just, I don't understand that one tiny bit. You can legislate against stupid. Okay. So this limousine driver unfortunately contracts the Delta variant, starts to spread it amongst the community. And for a lot of the last week, we are seeing case numbers in New South Wales rise. We're seeing new cases of community transmission heading to the double digits every day. What happens from here? How does the lockdown progress? Okay, yeah. So we've talked about the controversy and how the virus started. Turns out that's not the end of the controversy. (laughs) We have a week-long discussion about will or won't Greater Sydney, New South Wales in general, go into lockdown? Okay. So talk me through what happens. So we're at Monday and Tuesday, the case numbers are rising. We hit to Wednesday, and that's when discussions start to ramp up. Yes. So Gladys Berejiklian comes up. She says a lockdown is not necessary, but we're going to tighten restrictions mostly for people in Sydney. You know, masks indoors, that sort of things. Everyone's still talking about a lockdown. Next day, Thursday, greater numbers again. Still, I don't think we need a lockdown. However, we're really going to crack down on restrictions. Five people you can only have in your house. If you live in Greater Sydney, you can't go outside Greater Sydney. Everyone's like, "Mm, this kind of feels like a lockdown light, but all right, okay, I guess. Thursday, no, Friday comes around. Got to keep my timetable straight. Friday comes around. Suddenly, uh, it's not technically a lockdown, but it's a stay-at-home order for four local government areas. And as anyone who lived or worked in those four local government areas, including the CBD, which means hundreds of thousands of people, potentially millions of people across the state, they need to lock down for at least a week and they can't leave the home, but it's not a lockdown. It's a stay-at-home order. And someone says, this is a lockdown. And Gladys Berejiklian says, you can call it whatever you want. And everyone's like, no, we'd like to call it a lockdown. And she was like, not my words. I know that I've been speaking all in one sentence, but that brings us up to Saturday. Everyone's criticizing what's going on with this lockdown. Saturday comes along, 29 cases overnight. Gladys Berejiklian's like, psych, guys, we're locking down for two weeks, all of Greater Sydney. Yeah, all of Greater Sydney, including the Blue Mountains, Wollongong and Central Coast are going into a two-week hard lockdown. Can't leave the house except for like essential reasons. Got to work from home if you can. It's it's as locked down as you can get. I would like to say, though, that a funny thing that I saw leading up to Saturday was like by Saturday morning, someone was posted on Twitter a video of them scrolling through all the hot spots in Sydney. And oh. it was it was a 40-second video and they got up to suburbs beginning with C. And they oh, were just no. like, at which point is a hot spot a lockdown? Like, <laughs> yeah. like if you've gone to any of these places, basically every place in Sydney, um, you can't leave your house. <laughs> but wait a second. We're doing a lot of discussion about whether they're going to lock down, whether they're not, why they're half-assing this lockdown, why maybe they're trying to not do a lockdown. 
Why doesn't New South Wales want to lock down? I think that's a central question here. Mm, Absolutely. And on the one hand, like, yes, lockdowns suck at the end of the day. They're bad for the economy. They force a lot of people to work from home, which can be really difficult practically. They sometimes have to navigate working with looking after little kids. Like, it's not a situation that anybody wants to be in. But are there bigger political reasons at play here? Talk me through it. We are now venturing from the safe world of pandemics into the murky world of politics. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So New South Wales has been a staunch supporter of you don't need to lock down. If your contact tracing is good enough, if you, you know, trust the people to do the right thing, like that's a lot of New South Wales's sort of messaging. Like we believe that you'll treat this correctly there's a very strong sort of sense that lockdowns are not necessary. Yeah. And this was good for New South Wales. It's very popular with people in New South Wales talking about, like, we don't need to lock down. Our contact tracing is just that good. But it's also good for Be- Gladys Berejiklian specifically because the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, hates lockdowns. Like, they're bad for the economy. He doesn't want states to lock down. He doesn't want states to close their borders. So it was great that he could point to New South Wales and be like, Gladys Berejiklian is doing it so well. She is the they have the gold standard mm. of COVID care. Like he is to a certain degree literally saying Gladys Berejiklian is the golden child <laughs> of the pandemic. She so, is that she she gets the gold star on her report card. Exactly. And for a liberal state government, which New South Wales is, they're part of the Gladys Berejiklian's the Liberal Party. It is great to have the Liberal Prime Minister talk publicly in front of the whole nation about how great you are. Like that benefits Berejiklian a huge amount. But this is also a two-way relationship. It's There's mutual benefits for this because Scott Morrison has this agenda of states not locking down. Having New South Wales as a state that hasn't locked down since March, has managed to contain reasonably big outbreaks, is managing hotel quarantine just fine, even with the little breaches. He's able to point to New South Wales anytime any other state locks down and be like, well, if your contact tracing was good enough, you could have done the New South Wales model. Well, actually, New South Wales would have managed to do this without locking down either. Mm. Well, this like it is this mutually beneficial relationship that the federal and New South Wales state government has all revolving around not locking down. And I think it would be naive to suggest that that didn't come into play at all when we're talking about this outbreak. Yeah. And I think it's also important to point out that a lot of the states that have been locking down more readily, like Victoria and Queensland, they are run by Labor governments. And so it's a wonderful political wedge for the federal Liberal government to be like, you know, for those people living in Victoria and Queensland, we feel really bad for you that you're going into lockdown. But at the end of the day, this is the fault of your state Labor government because, hey, New South Wales, state Liberal government, handling things fine without going into lockdown. If only you had a state Liberal government. But Scott Morrison, didn't South Australia have a Liberal government and also lockdown? I don't want to hear about it. Look at <laughs> McGowan locking down all the time. <laughs> okay, so let me let me see if I understand what you're saying. Please. So, yes, on the one hand, New South Wales doesn't want to go into lockdown because lockdowns are kind of shit. Mm-hmm. But we also can't ignore the fact that there is this mutual politically beneficial two-way relationship between the New South Wales state Liberal government and the federal Liberal government when New South Wales doesn't go into lockdown. And that's because the federal government gets to point to them and say, look at this wonderful example of this Liberal government not ruining people's lives and going into lockdown every time there's a COVID outbreak. And the Liberal government gets to be like, look at our Papa Daddy 
Scott Morrison praising us for not going into lockdown. Aren't we wonderful? And it's just like a real great political moment for the Liberal Party as a whole in this country. Yeah, I mean, like, I think it's also worth acknowledging that they actually have dealt with COVID outbreaks really well. Like, they have, they seemingly did have a better contact tracing system or a better... The New South Wales government. The the New South Wales government than at least Victoria. Like, there's certain occasions where you're like, no, I can see how they've done that better. And also, uh, the New South Wales state government has been very critical of the federal government about vaccines. So it's Mm. not all chummy, chummy, chummy. It's not just because it's two Liberals doesn't mean they're going to agree on everything. Okay. So we know that over the last week, the New South Wales state government has been really reluctant to lock down. And there are questions about whether that reluctance comes from political motivations. The question now is whether the fact that they have gone into a two-week lockdown is going to impact them at the next state election. And what a lot of people are wondering is whether the New South Wales government could have gone into a snap three or five-day lockdown at the start of the week when case numbers were, you know, starting to enter the double digits and avoided going into a two-week lockdown or whether they did the right thing by waiting and making sure that they had to go into a lockdown before they did. Well, that's the thing, right? When they were announcing this, Dr. Kerry Chant, who's the Chief Health Officer for New South Wales, stood up on Saturday and said, we're going into two weeks because we know that a three-day lockdown just doesn't work. You know, the, the virus will keep bubbling away. But at least I know from my perspective watching it, my first thought when I heard that was actually, but wait a second, don't we have evidence that a three-day lockdown does work in other states like Western Australia, like Queensland, Melbourne did a five-day lockdown at the start of the year? So I think it's going to be a real question of like whether they can keep on that dialogue of like a three-day lockdown was never going to work because I wonder whether there just is a bit too much evidence recently in the public mind to suggest that that's not actually the case. Yeah, and I think whether or not this is going to affect the Liberal government at the next federal election really comes down to whether people think that their decision to not lock down was politically motivated. Yeah, because I think there really is this strong argument of like, no, they really didn't want to put people through the suffering of a lockdown. So therefore, maybe it was right to wait until this was inevitable, waiting until you had no other option, trying really hard to do everything else you can. And it just turns out in this situation, the Delta variant was too contagious. Yes, but if the narrative that takes hold is that the state Liberal government was trying to avoid going into lockdown because it's an ugly word that could affect them negatively in the long term, politically speaking, uh, I don't think that that is going to play well for them. Okay, so that's at the state level where at this kind of fork in the roads, there's all the questions about how this virus spread from the limo driver to begin with. Then there's all these questions about whether the lockdown was sort of needed earlier or not. We'll see which way that goes. But what about on a federal level? How might this affect Scott Morrison's government? I think one of the biggest ways it's going to affect the federal liberal government is that it opens up a whole world of criticism against the federal government for not handling the pandemic better and avoiding these virus outbreaks happening in the first place. Mm -hmm. Because when it came to the Victorian state government or the Queensland state government, which, as we said before, are both run by Labor governments, when they went into lockdown, they were very quick to point the finger at the federal government and say, hey, we could have avoided this if we had a proper vaccine rollout. We could have avoided this if we had purpose-built, federally-run quarantine facilities. And the Liberal government, in response to that, was able to point to the New South Wales government and say, no, no, you guys have fucked up. 
New South Wales is doing great here. If you were more like New South Wales, like our New South Wales beloved Liberal government, you wouldn't be having lockdown. This is not our fault as a federal government. New South Wales having to go into a lockdown now opens up a whole world of criticism against the federal government because people are saying like, oh, a vaccine would have been great around now. Like New South Wales maybe wouldn't be going to lockdown if the federal government had done their job properly. And we, I mean, we keep talking about the, you know, Barry Jicklin being chummy with the federal government. They're not chummy about vaccines. Like even during this, they're saying, well, we're trying to ramp up vaccines. We're trying to do this. But like our hands are tied behind our backs because there's just not the supply that we need. You know, I think what I'm trying to say is, Ah, we're not having a fucking federal election this year. They're going to wait as long as possible. Hey, Justine. Yeah? Do you remember the days when Australia was, like, swapping leaders every day? That <laughs> like, was, yeah, that was that was a few good years, yes? Uh, yeah, they, those years might be back. Ah, uh, yes, yes. So last Monday, the Nationals Party collectively decided that their leader and the Deputy Prime Minister, Michael McCormack, just wasn't cutting it. So they got together in a room and voted him out and replaced him with none other than Australia's uh, weird, awkward, uncomfortable relative, Barnaby Joyce. <laughs> so there's a lot of confusion about what actually went down last week. So first things first, Matilda, I think that the question on a lot of people's minds is how on earth do a bunch of nationals, MPs and senators get to decide who the deputy prime minister is? Yes, it's a good question and it does seem a bit weird because when you talk about the government, we usually say the Liberal government. I feel like we said it about 20 times in the last segment in and of itself. (laughs) Yes. But it's not the Liberal government. It's the Liberal National Coalition. They have joined forces, as we've talked about in previous weeks, like Power Rangers and formed one super body robot. Yes, exactly. And, okay, so we've got the coalition. Put that to the side for one moment. The other element to this is that in Australia, you vote in the political party and whoever the leader of the political party, which is decided internally, whoever they happen to be, ends up being the prime minister. And so when you have a coalition government win the election, the leader of the Liberal Party becomes the prime minister and the leader of the Nationals becomes the deputy prime minister. So that's how we got here. The Nationals get to pick their leader their leader becomes the deputy prime minister. Therefore, the nationals get to pick the deputy prime minister. (laughs) Yes. If you want like a good analogy, it's like we the people are like the teachers at a school who get to decide what kids get led into the school and then they all get to fight it out about who gets to be like school captain. I like that. Yeah. I didn't get school captain, so it hurts a little bit. Me neither. Moving on. Okay, okay. So I get how it happened, but why did it happen? Why did the Nationals want to replace Michael McCormack anyway? Why did they want to do it with Barnaby Joyce? Okay, so I think that there are a few things that are important to note here. The first one being that... Barnaby Joyce used to be the deputy prime minister back when Malcolm Turnbull was first in power, like three years ago. Wow, that feels- I want to say four. Four? Oh, feels like a long Stoma time ago. three years ago. I can't- Can you believe we've had the same leadership for three whole years? <laughs> How well have we done? <laughs> we're so close. Oh. Um, so Barnaby used to be the deputy prime minister. He had to leave his deputy prime minister position. Uh, and then Michael McCormack became the leader of the Nationals Party and came in. Now, there have been rumours in the days leading up to the spill last week that this spill was going to happen, and everyone totally denied it. Even Barnaby. He's like, no, there's no leadership spill happening. Which they (laughs) always do. I don't understand the farce that we go through in politics where everyone pretends a leadership spill hasn't happened until they literally come out the front of the lawn and say, hey, by the way, we've changed leaders. Everyone's like, we know the spill is happening, guys. We're aware. The biggest tell of a spill happening is everyone saying there's no spill. Yeah. (laughs) If anyone ever tells you there's no spill, expect one. 
It could also just be that there is no spill. But anyway, and also this is not the first time that this specific challenge has happened. So as I said, Barnaby had to leave his position as Deputy Prime Minister a few years ago. Michael McCormack took over. And then about a year ago, Barnaby challenged Michael McCormack for the leadership of the Nationals Party and the Deputy Prime Ministership. So this has already happened once. Barnaby failed pretty spectacularly, tail between his legs, walked back to like the backbench. Uh, but We knew that there was already this kind of internal tension brewing within the Nationals Party where some people wanted Barnaby back in the spot and some people wanted to keep McCormack there. But wait, why was McCormack so lacklustre to begin with? So you may be thinking that the reason the Nationals wanted to get rid of Michael McCormack is because he's a weirdo who is also super pro-coal. He says weird fucking shit all the time, especially when the Prime Minister is away on a holiday and he suddenly becomes like the acting Prime Minister of the country. For example, well, two weeks ago when ScoMo was in the, the, the G7, the G7. Yeah, up in Cornwall. Yeah, Michael McConnell did in federal parliament stand up and say that we should take all the mice from the mice plagues in the region and put them in the apartments of inner city animal activists and have them nibble on their children's toes. <laughs> it was weird. Everyone was like, that's a weird thing to say. Yeah, so you might be thinking, oh, the nationals were like, oh, okay, we've got to get rid of this weird guy who's super pro coal. No, the reason they got rid of him was. <laughs> because he's not weird or pro-coal enough. Yeah, 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 yeah. They want someone who's willing to make weird three-minute-long Instagram videos yelling at some cows and the sky, (laughs) and that man is Barnaby Joyce. (laughs) Yeah, and politically speaking, a lot of the Nationals Party were also worried that Michael McCormack was far too chummy with Scott Morrison. I know what you're thinking. Shouldn't they get along? They're the Prime Minister and the Deputy Prime Minister. Once again, to remind you, they're from separate parties. And there was concern that Michael McCormack was really a bit of a wet towel when it came to supporting the federal government's climate policy, because the federal government has received a lot of criticism internationally and most recently of the G7 about its lack of climate ambition. In particular, why doesn't Australia have a target of hitting net zero emissions by 2050? And The Guardian even reported last week that Nationals MPs and Senators have been concerned that the government's move towards greater climate action is actually going to hurt the economic interests of people in regional Australia, which is really like the Nationals Party heartland. So the Liberal government isn't a big fan of climate change action to begin with. Let's just make that clear. But one of the big obstacles that's always been in the Liberal Party's way of doing anything about climate change has been the Nationals. And as Scott Morrison has got more and more international pressure, he still hasn't committed to net zero emissions by 2050, but he's been edging closer and closer. to. He's been hinting. Oh, we'll do it. Don't worry. We won't commit, but we'll do it. We'll invent the technologies. We'll do it. Like he's been like getting closer and closer and that has been making the Nationals quite worried. And even though Michael McCormack literally went on the Conversations podcast last week and said that the Nationals would not be backing the government's 2050 targets, it still wasn't enough. Now, Barnaby, on the other hand, is super anti-2050 targets and super pro-coal. Like, for example, he wants to build a coal-fired power station in central Queensland despite the coalition's goal for net zero emissions by 2050. And also no one wants to build coal power <laughs> power plants at the moment. No one even wants to build gas-fired power plants, like, let alone coal ones. Yeah, like they are on the out. So They're expensive. So the Nationals, if they want someone who's really going to stand up to Scott Morrison and really take a pro-coal, anti-emissions target approach, Barnaby was their choice. So we'll run through everything about Barnaby Joyce's sort of past and who exactly he is in a second. But before we get into that, Justine, can you tell me what actually happened on Monday? What went down? Absolutely. So suddenly it's Monday and the Nationals have called a party room meeting, which is basically 
uh, it's quite literally a room in Parliament where <laughs> they all get to sit together and discuss internal politics matters for their party. Matt Canavan, who is major like nationals, pro coal friend of Barnaby. He's one of the more conservative voices from the National Party. Exactly. He calls for a spill motion, which in basic terms means that the leadership of the party is declared open and everyone in party room, so all the federal, nationals, MPs and senators get to vote about who the leader of the party is going to be. So they do the vote and according to ABC sources, Barnaby defeated McCormack in, quote, a very close contest. So we don't know exactly what the numbers were, but we know that Barnaby had to get at least a majority of 21 votes to take the top job. Now, as we mentioned before, this is the second time that he's challenged the leadership of the party. It's interesting because very often these spills, these leadership spills come in twos. So remember when uh, Malcolm Turnbull challenged Tony Abbott to the leadership? Mm. It took him two goes to win that. And you kind of know that the second time around, they're going to win. They're not going to try twice and not have the numbers to win the second time around. Exactly. But the sort of end of the day, Barnaby Joyce comes out, speaks on the grass, says, hey, fam. I'm your deputy PM. (laughs) And Michael McCormack's like, oh, I'm sad. He was. It's funny how quickly the public opinion of Michael McCormack turned. Like Sunday, we are like, what is this ridiculous dude talking about setting mice on little people? What a crazy, (laughs) wacky dude. Monday, we're like, wow, Michael McCormack, he was too measured. He was so, he was just such a classic politician. Yeah. Fun fact, though, not only did Barnaby Joyce like take over the leadership of the Nationals Party, but he also got like a massive fucking pay raise. So normally politicians and the government sitting on like the backbench get like around the $200,000 per year mark in terms of their salary, already quite large. Now, as Deputy Prime Minister, he is earning $433,000 a year minimum. So why don't we talk about who this man is that's getting a half a mil in taxpayer money? Yes, okay, Matilda. You also mentioned that there are a number of scandals in Barnaby's past, and we talked about earlier how one of those scandals in particular may have been the reason that he left the Deputy Prime Ministership. Yes, and it's not going to be the one that you think. So 2018 rolls around and what's this is the front page of the Daily Telegraph. It's this woman called Vicky Campion, very pregnant, a photo of her crossing the street and it says Bundle of Joyce as the headline, a headline which in itself won a Walkley Award, can I just say? (laughs) But you may be asking, who's Vicky Campion? Good question. His media advisor. You may be asking, who was she pregnant with? Uh, Good question. Him. That was his baby. Okay, that doesn't sound – I mean, yes, having relation a relationship with a staffer, a little bit controversial, but why, why was that so bad? Well, okay, so several months prior, he had announced that he was separating from his wife. Okay. We don't know the whole timeline of everything, but that happened. And Barnaby Joyce was very, very strong on, like, family values, nuclear families – opposing gay marriage as part of this very family values kind of guy. So I think a lot of tradition, like conservative family values, conservative views. So I think a lot of people were a bit taken aback that in the midst of those conservative views, he had had a relationship with his employee and she was now pregnant and that this was not something that had been disclosed to the public. Like Mm. that there was a question about was this in the public interest to know or was this just sort of the private life of politicians? And I think a lot of people came out and sort of said, if you have those views publicly, the public has a right to know whether there is things that are contravening those views, I guess, in your private life. Right. And so because he'd had these like conservative family values underpinning a lot of his policy choices very publicly, it 
a lot of people were like, oh, it's a bit hypocritical that in your private life you don't practice what you preach. But this wasn't the reason that Barnaby lost his deputy prime ministership. Matilda, tell me what actually happened. Yeah, so everyone, uh, I think the general public thinks that this is the reason because he resigned from his position as the deputy prime minister very soon, several weeks after this happened. But it actually kind of was more of a coincidence because what happened was later that month, the National Party, like administration, received a formal complaint accusing Joyce of sexual harassment. Now, he has categorically denied this. He said the accusations were what spurious and defamatory with like no truth to them. Mm. But essentially he was saying, I don't want to bring the party into disrepute by having to fight these allegations sort of in the public eye while as deputy prime minister. So I'm going to resign as this sort of internal investigation is carried out. He steps down, McCormack takes over, uh, and eight months later, the investigation concludes by saying that they uh, aren't concluding anything. So that's the reason why he stepped down. Not uh, Vicky Campion, not uh, the bundle of Joyce, but that, that investigation. And I think why it's worth really noting that point is that after the sort of last six months we've had in Parliament House, it's an interesting turn of events that we now have another extremely high-profile senior member of government who has had sexual harassment allegations against him. And they have not been proven conclusively true in this instance, just to restate that point. But yeah, it doesn't matter. The The damage has kind of been done in the public eye. Yeah, I think so. And I think that really leads us nicely to our final point, which is, Justine, what effect will this change actually have on the government? How How ScoMo feeling out of all of this? <laughs> okay. Locked away in quarantine, banging on the windows, <laughs> unable, just screaming like, Joyce, no, Joyce, from yeah. the line. Yes, so this is going to impact the government in a lot of ways, particularly ahead of the next election. There are three key ways I'm going to talk Please, to you about. I love an itemised list. <laughs> Number okay. one. Okay, so the first way is in terms of policy, in particular climate policy. There is a very good chance, unfortunately, that in the next year we are going to uh, go backwards as a nation in terms of our promised climate action and federal policies around that. You say promised. Was anything actually promised? Look, okay, so the PM has been facing a lot of pressure, as I said before, internationally to ramp up Australia's efforts in terms of our climate action. As most recently, when he was at the G7, a lot of other nations, including conservatively run nations like England and the Prime Minister there, Boris Johnson, have been like, mm, Australia, really not pulling your weight in terms of your climate action. And we're not. Unlike a lot of countries, we don't even have a target to hit net zero emissions by 2050. And that's pretty... Pretty basic and standard across the world right now. Yeah, we've got to sort of, trust me, bub, trust me, we'll do it. Yeah, don't worry. That's very much the government's line right now. Why would I need to put labels on things? (laughs) Yeah, the government is like your shitty, like, um, guy that you're seeing who's like, I don't want to call us boyfriend, girlfriend. Australia is in a situationship with net zero emissions by 2050. (laughs) Uh, So previously it was thought that Michael McCormack and even the deputy leader of the Nationals Party, David Littleproud, might be open to some sort of deal with the Liberal Party so that that the government can really embrace the target of net zero by 2050. Unfortunately, if you have these two parties mushed together that have different values at times, they really have to come together and compromise on things and or make deals and agree on things. So that way, when they are voting legislation in, they can actually do that. And so now that Barnaby Joyce is in and he has very publicly denounced the idea of net zero targets by 2050, it just does not seem likely that they're going to agree on that policy. Yeah, and it's like I think this brings us to the sort of next point in terms of the election. 
this whole situation has highlighted the divide between the Liberals and the Nationals. The fact that the Nationals are in headlines is never a good sign for the Liberals. You want to forget that this coalition is two separate parties. You want to think that this is sort of one monolithic thing and Scott Morrison has total control. How will this instability affect the election? Yes, this brings me to my second point, which is all about is this going to create instability? And a real reason why people have been questioning whether this instability in leadership, this sudden change is going to affect voters is because there has been a lot of criticism, particularly coming from the Liberal Nationals Coalition in the past towards the Labor Party about how their leadership instability like rocks the boat in Australia. They can't get their shit together. Uh, This is the reason why the Labor Party had this massive downfall because of the back and forth leadership between Gillard and Rudd. Rudd and then – wait – Rudd and then Gillard and And then then Rudd. And then, like, immediately afterwards, we had that sort of, what, two, three years patch where we had, like, it was, uh, you know, it went from uh, Gillard to Rudd to Turnbull, uh, sorry, to Abbott, and then Turnbull took over and then Turnbull got spilled for Morris. And, like, we had this period of real instability in Australian politics that people were really upset about. Look, history does show us, though, that this is probably not going to have a huge impact on voter choices, uh, just the fact that there's been a change of leadership hands, because it has happened in the past in the current government, and not just you know, the deputy prime minister, but the actual prime minister. We've had three different liberal prime ministers since they came into power in 2013, and that hasn't stopped them from winning. The final point I want to talk about, also to do with the chances of the government at the next federal election, is women. Shit. (laughs) So one of the biggest consequences of Barnaby Joyce being put back into the deputy prime ministership is his reputation amongst women, given the allegations of sexual harassment that were made against him and have, you know, since not been conclusively proven. The fact that those allegations were even made is definitely weakened his support amongst female voter bases. And that's particularly bad for the government at the moment because – As a lot of people listening might already know, the federal government has faced a lot of criticism in the last six, nine months over allegations of sexual harassment, assault, and even rape by federal ministers and staffers. Yeah. So the Saturday paper reported over the weekend that Scott Morrison is very aware that the Liberal Party and the National Party are being perceived very negatively in terms of their treatment of women and women's issues. And as a result, Scott Morrison has been encouraging Liberal Party branches in all states across the country to uh, really ramp up how many women they're pre-selecting to contest seats at the next federal election. So really try and choose more women than they have in the past to run for election for them. And and more women in safe seats where they actually will get in. Have a chance of getting in, yes. So that's been the government's response to this. And I think that that really highlights the fact that the government is critically aware of how negatively they are being perceived by women across the country and that that risks, that perception risks getting even worse now that a man who has been accused of sexual harassment is now the Deputy Prime Minister. Yeah. And, I mean, again, we've sort of seen that, like, okay, yeah, the investigation was inconclusive and it's denied, but those that sort of feeling of uncomfortableness with female voters doesn't go away the moment that an investigation concludes, essentially. But, like, at least Barnaby Joyce hasn't, like, taken over, you know, Michael McCormack's position on the National Women's Safety Committee, right? Right? No, he did that last week. No, no, he did that last week. Yeah, so Barnaby Joyce is also now sitting on the National Women's Safety Committee, which is just like a government committee dedicated to ending violence against women and promoting their safety. But, you know. um, It's not, I wouldn't say the best look overall. If I was going to pick words to describe this, (laughs) 
wouldn't say the best look. Maybe a PR disaster. Remember when Abbott made himself the Minister for Women? Yeah. That we're we're rivaling that at this point. <laughs> yeah, so once again, I think the main takeaway from this discussion is that the federal government's not going to be calling the federal election anytime soon. Whoopsies. <laughs> That's about all we have time for this week. Oof. Oof. You say that every week. I you're know. like, oof. <laughs> yeah. But am I ever wrong? No, you're, no, you're never wrong. Particularly oof for the government. <laughs> yeah. Um, before, oof. Um, before we go, just a reminder that if you are feeling so inclined, you can head to the Old Boys Club Patreon page to support us that way. www.patreon.com forward slash Old Boys Club pod. Or if you feel like supporting us in other ways, take a screenshot of yourself listening to Old Boys Club, pop it up on Instagram, tag us. We will shout you out in the next episode. Episode. Speaking of which, who shared us this week? Yes, so we have to say thanks to Bianca, Jess, Tegan, Shian, Sebastian, Elizabeth, Samara, Vaughn, Peach, Maddie, Brad, Charney, Amy, and Ruby. And before we go, we would like to acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the land of the Burrawang people of the Eastern Kulin Nation, and we pay our respects to elders past and present. This land was stolen and never ceded. And we would also like to acknowledge the country that you are joining us from and pay our respects to any other Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people people who are listening today. Now, the theme music for this podcast is created by the amazing Alexis Weaver. Our show is produced, mixed and edited by Anthony Furchie and Alex Ty. I'm Matilda Bosley. I'm Justine Landis-Hanley. And, and this is Old, Old Boys Club. Club. Wow. Imagine What's if we going had a leadership on? spill. Oh, my God. Who would we elect? <laughs> I, think we, I think Anthony should take over. <laughs> I'm supporting him on the ballot. He's promised to put me on the front bench. <laughs> I've done much healing. I remember the words. Hello. Hi. <laughs> the worst bit of that is that I was trying to sing the Lionel Richie's hello and I got off track. <laughs> hello. I don't know what the, it's me. No. What's the next words?